Our scripture reading for this morning is from Luke 10, 1 through 20. It reads like this. It reads like this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. God has some really important stuff to say to us in his word today, and I really want my heart and your hearts to be ready to hear from him. So I would like to invite you one more time to bow your head with me. Uh, There's a lot going on in life. There's been a lot going on in here this morning. So I just want to quiet our hearts in the presence of God and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to really hear and focus on what he wants to say. So let's take a moment to pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We praise you for the biblical truth that we sung in a moment ago, that you are for us and not against us. Thank you for the time of worship we've had and for the Lord's Supper. We've remembered Jesus and looked forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God, we thank you for the those who are in children's church learning your word right now and those who are in the chapel hearing your word preached in Spanish and for the opportunity we have to hear your word now. Most of all, we thank you for who you are, for Jesus, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we want to come to you this morning humbly saying we need you not only to forgive our sins, but to renew us spiritually and to instruct us. So please give us minds that are locked in and attentive to your word, understanding minds enlightened by your truth, hearts that are fully engaged and humble before you. Help me, Lord, to speak everything you want me to and nothing that you don't. And I pray that today we would leave here knowing Jesus better, trusting Jesus more, loving Jesus more, having a deeper understanding of our calling as followers of Jesus. Our faith would be strengthened. We'd be wiser. We pray all these things for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to start today by reminding you of a verse that we read two weeks ago. 
We were in Luke chapter 9. And verse 51 of that chapter said this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And a couple of weeks ago, when we read that verse, I told you that verse is the hinge on which the gospel of Luke turns. What that verse was saying is Jesus, Jesus not only not pointed only himself pointed in the direction of Jerusalem, saying he set his face to go to Jerusalem, is evoking an ancient prophecy from Isaiah in which the servant of the Lord entrusted himself to God, even though he was going to suffer and be mistreated. He knew that God would vindicate him. And the text is saying Jesus has determined to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins, to willingly lay down his life so that we can be set free from sin and Satan and death and then to rise from the grave and ascend to the right hand of his father. That's the turning point in the gospel. And from that point forward, everything is moving towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. But what we're learning today is that as Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's making one last pass to visit some of the cities that he has already visited in his ministry. And there's a profound sense of urgency. This is the last chance he's going to get to talk to these people whom he loves about the nature of the kingdom of God to spiritually prepare them for what's about to happen. So they will be ready to receive the gift of life and forgiveness he wants to give them instead of facing judgment for rejecting God's purposes for them. And in this moment of urgency, Jesus is inviting more of his disciples to join in the movement and helping him in this urgent spiritual work. So we learn in verse one of our text, it says, after the Lord appointed, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he was about to go. So as Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem to lay down his life for his people, he's sending out a number of his disciples to go everywhere he's about to be. And before he gets there, they're going to have a ministry kind of like the apostles, the 12 apostles, or like John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the Lord, to get everybody ready for the arrival of Jesus so they'll be spiritually prepared to hear him on his last visit. Now, it's, it's somewhat mysterious who these individuals are. We don't know who they are. Actually, there's even a question about the number. If you're looking at your Bible, there may be a little footnote that says some ancient manuscripts say there were 70 of these individuals and there's different symbolism applied to those different uh, numbers. But the, the key point I want you to notice here is Jesus had a lot of followers. It wasn't just the 12 apostles. And the 12 apostles were not the only ones that he called into his ministry. One of the things we learn from the Gospels is that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to the earth to heal the wounds of the world, to forgive the sins of the world, to reconcile people to God and to one another. And he's doing that work himself, but he's also doing it through his people who are ambassadors of King Jesus. So everybody say ambassadors. The word ambassadors is not used in our text. Paul uses that word, but they're. That's what these people are doing. Jesus is the king and they're going ahead of the king as ambassadors of the king, announcing the kingdom and preparing people for his kingdom. He tells them to go praying because they are not going to be enough. There's going to need to be a lot more laborers. God is about to do a great harvest and gather people to himself from all nations. It's going to take a lot of harvest workers, laborers to be instruments in the hands of God. To draw the nations to himself. And they're told to pray. They're included in God's mission. But more people need to be included as well. And that prayer reaches all the way to us today. Because we are called, if we're followers of Jesus, to be laborers in this kingdom. We're called to be ambassadors. So return to your neighbor and tell them, you are an ambassador. Jesus, in our story, is doing important, urgent work through his ambassadors. That's a high calling. And one way to summarize the important, urgent work that we're doing is to skip down to verse 18. I'm, I'm ahead of myself. We'll come back to this in a minute. But look at this incredible verse. Jesus, when the, when the 70 or the 72 return, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
We'll talk more about that verse in a moment. But for now, I want you to see Jesus is saying something really significant is happening. There is evil in the world. Have you noticed that, church? There's a lot of evil in the world. And there's a lot of causes of that evil. But the Bible talks to us about real spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, demons. And it talks to us about Satan, the accuser, who is a mysterious spiritual force of evil in the world. And when Jesus is saying, I saw Satan cast down like lightning, he's saying, I just dealt, I just won a major victory. I saw God win a major victory that Satan is being defeated. Is that good news, church? And he could be referring to many things. Jesus already won a victory against Satan by resisting Satan's temptations in the wilderness. You remember that story? But it seems most likely that he's talking about the immediate context that as he has sent out the 72 and they have gone and proclaimed his message that God was at work through them dealing a serious blow to the kingdom of Satan. Now, is that an encouraging thought? God works through people, ordinary people who have been forgiven through faith in Jesus and who are humbly just trying to be ambassadors of his kingdom to defeat Satan. That's awesome. It's an awesome calling. And before we get into more of the details of this text, it's helpful just to step back for a moment and recognize this text is talking about a very specific and unique moment in the history of the world as Jesus was walking to Jerusalem and he sent these 72 particular people out. But our experience as the church today is analogous to what's happening here in many ways. So that this story has a lot to teach us about our calling. Just like Jesus sent them to proclaim his kingdom and do good in his name, Jesus has sent us to proclaim his kingdom and to do good in his name. He said, go make disciples of all nations. He taught us to be zealous for good works. We are ambassadors of King Jesus. The Christian church is always already a sent church. When we talk about sending, we're not just saying, hey, we need to send people to another country. God calls us sometimes to do that as well. But saying wherever the church is, we're already sent. If we're right here, it's because Jesus has sent us right here. So you told your neighbor there an ambassador a second ago, I need you to do one more thing. Tell him you're sent. Some of us are waiting for our assignment and when we don't need to be. Jesus already said, go make disciples of all nations. He told us, go love your neighbors. He may relocate you at some point. He may send you to another nation at some point, but you're already sent wherever you are. You're sent as an ambassador. And there is great urgency in our task, just as there was for these 72, because they were getting everybody ready for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're getting everybody ready for his second coming. Jesus will come back in glory to set all things right, to make all things new, to judge evil and to by grace gather his people into his new creation. And we're trying to get everybody ready, which means as we read through the instructions Jesus gave to his 72 disciples, we're learning about something that happened in a specific moment that doesn't apply in a direct one to one correlation to us. But we're learning also principles that can help us understand our own calling and our own vocation. So with that in mind, I want to take a few minutes to walk through this. And if you were here a few months ago when we read the instructions Jesus gave to the 12 apostles and sent them out, you're going to recognize a lot of this was in that text, too. Those points I'm going to touch on very briefly because we already talked about them a few weeks back. If you missed that day, you can find it on the podcast. What was it called? Apostles of the King, I think. And you can go hear more about that. But we're going to touch briefly on some of the things that he says to the 72, which he had already said to the 12. But we're also going to especially notice some new things he adds to those instructions. So as we think about our vocation as a sent church, what are some of the lessons we can learn? First of all, we are sent out praying as we go. The very first thing he says as he sends them in verse two is the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We have no chance at being effective at fulfilling God's mission for us if we don't pray, church. We are called to be a people of prayer because the mission that we're in is much bigger than us. And this prayer request that Jesus gives is here to remind us 
The mission is bigger than us. We need God's help. And also, God isn't going to do this just through us. We're a small and important part of something much bigger God's doing. Aren't you glad we're not the only Christians in the world? I'm so glad there's millions of people who love Jesus. I'm so glad there's thousands of people, even in this city, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and seeking to do good works. And this prayer request from Jesus tells us and all Christians throughout the ages, we need God's help. He's the Lord of the harvest. But we also need to keep asking God, raise up more people to do this work until Jesus returns, because there's a lot to get done. So the first lesson is we are sent out praying as we go. The second lesson for us as the sent church is Jesus sends us as sheep among wolves. That that is something that should cause us to pause and think. Verse three. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What does that mean for us, church? It means every Christian in every age should expect it to be normal to find that there are people and there are invisible spiritual powers who are opposing the work that we're doing. We should expect, expect spiritual warfare. We should expect hostility. If we find ourselves in a situation where our culture or our government treats the church with favor, we should give God thanks for that, but we should recognize that's an exception to the rule of the experience of Christians throughout history. And God doesn't say this to us in a way that should cause us to feel sorry for ourselves. As a matter of fact, you remember the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted and reviled for my sake. For great is your reward. He calls us to rejoice, to rejoice and be glad. So we should expect there's opposition and we should have joy because we're being counted worthy to participate in the sacred work that Jesus did and that Christians throughout the ages have done. And we just can acknowledge the fact that in the United States of America, we've had an easier assignment than most Christians in most nations and in most ages of the church. Amen. We've had an easier assignment and thank God for his blessings. Aren't you glad for freedom of religion? Aren't you glad for the privileges and favor that we have been able to experience? But as you know, if you get a lot of blessings, it's easy to get spoiled. And for us in America, this is a huge temptation that we face to expect ease, to expect comfort and to feel very sorry for ourselves and to begin to magnify our grievances and get hostile when those are taken away. And the Bible just shows us a different way. It shows us as Christians, we should expect there's going to be opposition. And when we face it, it does not say there's going to be wolves. So you better be a bigger wolf. That's not what it says, does it? He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, which means the people who oppose me, I'm not fighting against them. Actually, Jesus is going to teach us we're fighting for them. How do we respond to opposition? How do we respond to difficulties we face? We respond with love. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But if, for example, as some people fear, Christians in our context are likely to face more opposition as time goes on, we shouldn't freak out about it. We shouldn't feel sorry for ourselves. Here's what we should do. Everybody say rejoice and love. We are not wolves. We are sheep. But part of the reason we can relax is because we have a shepherd. We have a shepherd. He says he's going to protect us. He's going to take care of us. Doesn't mean we won't suffer, but it means that he's going to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's going to restore our souls. We're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, which means we have great hope and great joy along the way. Okay, that was the second lesson. He sends us as sheep among wolves. Third lesson. Jesus calls us to practice radical dependence on him and others as a sent church. We need to learn to practice dependence. Now, we talked about this quite a bit a few weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' instructions to the twelve. So I'm just going to touch on it briefly right now. But look again at verse 4. Jesus said to the disciples, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Now, let me ask you a question, church. This is not supposed to be a trick question. If you're sent out on foot to go walking around from village to village on a mission and you're told, don't take a bag, don't take a backpack, don't take a fanny pack. Don't take extra shoes. Are those practical instructions? 
Good. Some of y'all were bold and said, no, that is the correct answer. Good job, guys. Okay. Those are not practical instructions. Jesus is not being practical here. Instead, he's teaching the disciples to embody radical faith and dependence. Dependence on God for their provision. But as we'll see, it's not just dependence on God. It's also dependence on the people to whom they're ministering. If you skip down to verse 7, we read this. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. He's saying depend on God and depend on the hospitality and generosity of the first person who welcomes you when you get to a particular town. Now, these are not abiding instructions that every Christian has to do uh, to the letter of the law for the rest of time. But there is something being taught us here that I think we really need to learn. We are a culture that really values self-reliance and independence. And there is a proper place for that, learning to take responsibility for ourselves, to take care of ourselves so we'll be able to take care of others. But a lot of us are much more willing to take care of others than to receive from others. And a lot of us struggle to step out and serve anybody unless we've got a a foolproof plan that we know we're going to be okay. We don't want to be dependent on God and others. We like to be independent. And Jesus is calling his disciples to go in a spirit of dependence upon God and interdependence upon one another. He calls them to radical dependence. All right, next lesson. Jesus calls us to be very focused on our assignment. He calls us to be very focused on our assignment. I I, uh, was struck this week by the end of verse four. And greet no one on the road. I kind of read past it quickly the first time I read it. But one of the nice things about preaching is you read a text of scripture more times than you had before. And if there's like 30 good things in it, you might miss a little phrase. But if you read it 50 times, it's like, wait a minute. Don't say hi to anybody on the road. That's a weird instruction. It had me thinking. The point of the instruction in context seems to be. There's urgency to your mission. I want you to go to all these towns and villages. Don't get distracted. There's going to be people in situations that are going to come. They're trying to distract you and get you away from what I've called you to do. And you need to have a laser focus locked in on what I've called you to do. The mission I've given you. So the key word here is focus. Everybody say focus. But this really got me thinking because I grew up hearing sermons and I have sometimes preached sermons that we said things like, have you noticed how Jesus never sees anybody as a distraction? And the person that is talking to him on the side of the room, he always has time for everybody. He always makes time for everybody who makes him a request. I've said that. I've heard that. You heard sermons like that. You haven't preached them. There's there's some truth to that. So often the people that everybody else thought was a distraction, Jesus gave time to. But it's just interesting here. He says, greet nobody on the road. And it got me thinking about moments like in Mark chapter one, where tons of people were coming to Jesus asking for help. But Jesus had got up very early in the morning to pray. And he said, no, I can't stay and help you here because the father is sending me over there. And this is something that for some of us, uh, I think, is food for prayer and discernment. Um, we, we need to be careful here because a lot of us could go through life just saying, oh, the Holy Spirit didn't help me tell me to be nice to you. The Holy Spirit didn't tell me to help you. That is not what Jesus is saying right here. Right. We're supposed to love everybody. And he called us to have a radical orientation towards generosity, give to everyone who asks from you. But there's also a reality that lots of people have a plan for your life. Amen, church. I have a plan for your life. Chauncey has a plan for your life. God has a plan for you. all kinds of people have a plan for your life. Right. And you have plans for one another's lives. And people call me all the time and say, Pastor, we have a great opportunity for you and your church. They have a plan for all of our lives. And the reality is there's one plan we need to stay locked in on. Whose plan is it, church? It's, G- it's God's plan. It's the plan Jesus gives us. And spiritual maturity often involves developing discernment to recognize I'm finite. God's caring for all the people all the time, but God has called me to do some specific things. And if I'm going to be locked in and do well what God has called me to do, that might mean I've got to say no to some other good opportunities. You hear that, church? Some of y'all need to pray over that this week. All right, what, what have we, has he taught us so far? Here, here were the first lessons. We are sent out praying as we go. We're sent out as sheep, sheep among wolves. We're sent out by Jesus being called to be very focused on our assignment. Here's the next one. Jesus sends us as instruments of his peace. I love verses five and six. 
Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Peace be to this house. We've got a little song that we teach the kids to sing sometimes in our church based on an old prayer called the Prayer of St. Francis. And the song goes, some of you know it, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let your love increase. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. I love the thought that when you go into a neighborhood or a workplace or a school in the name of Jesus, representing Jesus, and people receive you, Jesus gives a promise, they're receiving the peace of God into their homes. Isn't that awesome? And I've seen that played out over the last decades in this community. It's a beautiful thing. We're, we're bearing, to be an ambassador of Christ is to be an agent of his peace so that wherever you go with the gospel, you're becoming that channel through which his peace flows, which brings blessing to people. And of course, this, this was written in Greek. I think the Greek word is arene or something like that. But behind it is that Hebrew word, which we've talked about a number of times. Everybody say shalom. Shalom is the peace that is God's will for his creation in which every aspect of his creation is rightly related to God and to one another. When shalom is here in its fullness, that means the new creation, the new heavens and the earth. But in the meantime, wherever we go in the name of Jesus, we're bearing the peace of Christ with us. It's beautiful. Next lesson here. Go preaching and healing, preaching and healing. Words and deeds go together. Look at verse nine. It says, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, this is something that we've seen a lot in the Gospel of Luke, so I'm not going to talk about it too much here, but Jesus proclaimed the truth of God to people, and he demonstrated that truth by loving people and the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that brought healing to their lives. And he consistently sends out his church to do the same thing. We preach good news and we do good works. If we're doing one without the other, we're going to have an imbalance and not be able to be faithful to what God has called us to do. So they're preaching the kingdom of God and they're healing people. But in all of those, it's all about the king. They're doing everything in the name of Jesus. So everybody say it's all about Jesus. Now. I've only got a couple more lessons here, and the next one is a big one that gets a lot of attention in this text, which is different than what he said earlier. And what he's saying here is we must proclaim the good news of God's grace and lovingly warn people of the destructive power of evil. The first half of that statement is very fun and encouraging and beautiful and joyful. And the second half is very sobering. We must proclaim the good news of God's grace. The kingdom of God has come near to you. But we also must warn people of the destructive power of evil. Verse 10, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Now, this was a prophetic action. I told you about it a few weeks ago. It was customary for Jews in this time when they left a Gentile community to shake the dust off of their feet. And it was a way of saying, we are the chosen special people of God. And you are not. We don't want to be contaminated by you. And these 72 are being sent only to Jewish towns and villages. So the prophetic action Jesus is telling them is this. If you reject Jesus, if you reject the kingdom of God and then presume based on your ethnicity and your family pedigree that you're right with God, you are incorrect. Rejecting Jesus means being cut off from the very promises God is wanting to give to you. It's a warning. It's a warning that's designed to move people to repentance. Scripture says the kindness of the Lord is meant to bring us to repentance. But it also tells us that God's wrath and the warning of his wrath provokes people to see the destructive nature of evil and the consequences of it. He says, tell them. We wipe off this dust against you. No, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. In Jesus, God's reign, God's rule is coming to the earth. Repent, repent, get ready. And then he goes through and starts pronouncing woes 
laments, warnings on various towns that are rejecting his message. It's a very sad and a sobering concept. And if we want to understand what it's all about, we can skip down to verse 16. It's, it's really crucial for understanding this section. Look at verse 16. The one who hears you, Jesus says to his disciples, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. He's saying to his disciples, who he sends with his word. By bringing my name, the name of Jesus to people, you're bringing the peace of God. You're offering the peace of God to them by grace. And you're bringing me to people. If they reject the gospel, they're rejecting me, Jesus is saying. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. Which means, on the flip side, if they receive the gospel, they're receiving the very person of Jesus who is God. Something very profound is being said here. Listen, friends, God is love. God is joy itself. God is goodness and the source of every goodness. When we're talking about the wrath of God, what we're not talking about is a vindictive, hateful God who wants people to suffer. The, the Bible says the opposite of that over and over. Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven: I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his evil ways and live. Or we could go to First uh, Timothy and talk about Paul saying that God desires all to be, people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What we're talking about when we talk about the wrath of God is summed up nicely in Romans 1 with the phrase, he gave them up to themselves. He's talking about, in Romans 1, the destructive nature of sin, the destructive nature of evil. What is sin? There's a lot of ways to think about it, but a simple way is sin is just running away from God. It's running away from Jesus. But church, we just said God is love. That means sin is running away from love. We just said God is joy itself and beauty itself. That means sin is running away from beauty. It's running away from joy. God is goodness itself and the source of all goodness, which means sin is running away from all goodness. God in his grace restrains us in our sin. Aren't you glad that God has blocked your goals a lot of times in life? You were headed down a foolish path and God intervened for your welfare. That has happened to me a lot of times. Thanks be to God. Grace is restraining our self-destructive running away from God. What the wrath of God, what judgment is, is allowing sin to have its way. Which is why C.S. Lewis was correct when he said, in the end, there's only two kinds of people. Those who eventually, by God's grace, say, thy will be done. Or those to whom judgment means God having to eventually say, thy will be done. Sin is a running away from God. To run away from God is to the, the, the triumph of that. The ultimate victory of sin is alienation from all goodness, life, love and joy. So Jesus, who loves these people, is saying woe to you. And he's sending his disciples to plead with them and to warn them in the strongest terms. Come back, come back. There's something very beautiful and powerful about the gospel. And there's also something sober minded. When we thought, think about God's grace, it's, it's powerful. It's so powerful and it's so healing. It's so good. But we won't really get it if we don't take seriously the destructive power of evil. Evil really does have the power to destroy our lives. And Jesus is saying, uh, come home, come back. I want to forgive you. I want to restore you. Now, that's a sobering moment, but we get to end on. Two happy lessons. Are you ready to talk about the victory of God over evil? The next lesson here that Jesus gives them and us is God, as he sends us, Jesus, as he sends us, has given us authority over evil spiritual powers. In the end, evil is not going to win. Jesus is going to win. And if you look at verse 17, it tells us these guys have been sent on their mission. Now they come back to Jesus and it tells us about their conversation. It says the 72 returned with joy. That's a key word here. Everybody say joy. They returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you 
authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. This is a remarkable passage. Here's what is happening. The disciples went out. The 72 and everywhere they went, they told people about Jesus. They proclaimed the kingdom of God. They healed the sick people that were there, but also just as Jesus and the 12 apostles experienced in some way that's not described to us here, they encountered demons. Have you noticed that everywhere the name of Jesus goes, it's like kicking a hornet's nest and all these evil spiritual powers are coming to the surface. That keeps happening throughout the Gospels and throughout Acts. So all these demons are manifesting and they are telling the demons to go away in the name of Jesus. They're casting out demons and, and they're filled with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Can you imagine being a Jew living First in exile and then experiencing some kind of return, which is very disappointing. And you're surrounded by a pagan culture where people are worshiping all sorts of evil spirits and they're all around all the time. And you pray and you pray, but you feel trapped. And then all of a sudden this person, Jesus, comes and now evil spirits are popping up left and right more so than ever before. But when you give them a command in the name of Jesus, they say, "Okay," and obey. They're filled with joy. Something new has happened. And Jesus is right. He says, Yes, something new has happened. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The word Satan means the accuser, the accuser. And the history of Satan in the Bible is a fascinating study, which we don't have time to dig into today. But the accuser is also the tempter. He's also the father of lies. And what Satan is doing in ways that we usually can't directly see in the world is deceiving people and luring people towards evil. And then once they do it, accusing them and condemning them and heaping shame on them. And what Jesus is saying is the power of the tempter and the accuser who heaps condemnation and shame on my people is broken. I'm breaking it right now. And this statement, I think, is about the moment of this mission that's happening as they're proclaiming the kingdom of God. But as we read the rest of the New Testament, the place where the power of Satan is especially broken is the cross. Because the cross of Jesus is the moment where God defeats all spiritual powers and takes away their ability to condemn and to accuse us. Because if you've trusted in Jesus, all of your sin has already been paid for. There's no shame left. There's no condemnation left. The devil wants to tempt you to do evil, but then he wants to keep you trapped in shame. Friends, I want you to hear something. Some of you come to church week after week feeling ashamed and leave feeling ashamed. And you go to bed at night feeling ashamed. And you feel a weight of your failures. And I don't have... uh, The ability to stand and say to you truthfully that you haven't sinned and failed. I've sinned and failed. You've sinned and failed. We've all sinned and failed. But I have something better to say to you. What I have to say to you is that Jesus paid the price. Through his cross, he paid the price. And and what the gospel means is this. Anybody who trusts in Jesus is buried with Jesus and rises with Jesus. Which means your sin has already been judged and Jesus has led you safely through that judgment. It's already been taken care of at the cross, which means if you've trusted in Christ, no more shame. You're free from shame. You're free from condemnation. We just read it when we were taking the Lord's Supper. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which means there's no shame has no more victory. And if shame and our past sin and our past failure have no more power over us, then Satan's power is broken. That's what Jesus is saying. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, it's clear from other things Jesus says he doesn't mean that we're not going to face difficulty. He doesn't mean we're not going to be attacked by the devil. The spiritual warfare is real. But what he's saying here is like what he says elsewhere when he says things like some of you, they will kill, but not a hair of your heads will be harmed. It's a strange statement, isn't it? He says, don't fear those who can only destroy the body, but can't harm your soul. What he's getting at is spiritual forces of evil are going to come against you. But if you're in me, you already have victory. You already have victory. 
The statement about serpents and scorpions evokes several Old Testament passages, but especially Deuteronomy 8.15, in which Moses, at the end of his life, is looking back to the wilderness wanderings of God's people. And he's saying to them, hey, you walked through the desert. There was serpents, there were scorpions, there was all sorts of dangerous stuff, and yet you came through alive. It wasn't because of how powerful you is, it's because the Lord your God sustained you. And Jesus is now saying to his church, I've already won the victory over Satan. It's taken care of. So he may attack you in this life, but he will lose. I will lead you through the wilderness into the promised land. And then he says something better. Even more importantly than the fact that he's given us authority over spiritual powers is the truth that he's written our names in heaven by grace. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Earlier I had you say joy. And he says, I'm glad you're happy, but you're happy about the wrong thing. He wants them to rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. He's saying the fact that demons submit to you in my name feels like a big deal to you. And probably if you cast out a demon today, that would feel like a big deal to you too. Wouldn't it, church? Can you be honest? But Jesus is saying that is really small compared to the bigger deal. Your names are written in heaven. What does that mean? It means if you have trusted in me, if you're my disciples, your sin is forgiven. God has already written your name in heaven. You're going to reign with him in the new creation and nothing can separate you from my love. If you want to be happy about something, get happy about that. And that gospel reality is what sustains them. So that as we live this Christian life, there's sorrows, there's struggles, there's disappointments, there's frustrations. But we can go our way rejoicing because we already have the ultimate victory in Jesus Christ. And if there's anybody in here who has not made that decision to trust in Jesus, here's the most important thing you need to hear today. If you want to know your name is written in heaven, trust in Jesus. If you want to know your name is written in heaven, it's that simple. Trust in Jesus. Nobody else can forgive your sins. Nobody else can take away your shame and your guilt and your fear. Only Jesus can. But if you trust in him, it's his gift. He says your name is written to heaven. Hey, I got one more thing before I sit down. I skipped what was maybe the first lesson about being the sent out church in this passage because I wanted to end on it. Go back to verse 1. And I want you to notice three words. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. Here they are, two by two. Two by two. As I was praying for us this week, thinking about this passage, I felt like the Lord brought those three words to the surface for me, and I wanted to end on them right now. Here's the last lesson today. We are sent... As teams, we are sent as community. We're not sent as individuals. Which means the normal Christian life is a sent life and a communal life. We are sent together. We are sent as church, not as individuals. And that's so important. It's so important. We're not going to be effective at fulfilling the mission God has given us to do or at growing in spiritual maturity if we try to live the Christian life in isolation. We need community. But can we be real for a second? Who, who here would testify that many of the greatest blessings you've had in your Christian life have been through other Christians and Christian community? Who could testify that many of the hardest and most painful and terrible stuff that's happened in your Christian life has also come through other Christians and Christian community? Most of us would say it's both. Jesus sends us as church. He sends us as community to bear his love. And if we connect this to the other themes that are happening in this text, um, it just comes into focus. Jesus gave his life to make this community possible. Satan really wants to destroy this community. This is the community that bears witness to the kingdom of God. If he doesn't, if Satan wants people not to trust Jesus and worship Jesus, probably the most effective thing that he could do is to get Christians mad at each other all the time and dividing and splitting. And have you noticed that that happens a lot? Satan has been cast down like lightning, but he has not yet been thrown into the lake of fire. And he's still doing the same old tricks. Jesus gave his life to make this community possible. Satan wants to destroy this community. The Holy Spirit wants to build, heal, and sustain this community. 
Right now, I am on a recruiting mission. Are you ready, church? I want to recruit you to be on Team Holy Spirit, not Team Satan. Satan wants to destroy community. Holy Spirit wants to build community. And here's the thing. Even if you trust in Jesus, you can start working for Team Satan without realizing it. Remember that one time when Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, blah, blah, blah. And then a little bit later, he says, get behind me, Satan. Also to Peter, right? In the Christian life, we can really quickly go from I'm doing God's work to I'm doing the devil's work. And I'm recruiting you with respect to this two by two. We're sent as community. We're sent as church thing to join Team Holy Spirit, not Team Satan. What does the word Satan mean? We said it a couple of times. Somebody can yell it out for me. Accuser. Everybody say accuser. Satan is the accuser of the saints. So if you out loud or in your heart are largely in a mode of accusing the saints, always talking about everybody's failures around you and everybody's weaknesses around you. Pop quiz. Is that Team Holy Spirit or Team Satan? That's Team Satan. And we're free from shame here. We already said that, right? If, if the accusing is happening in our hearts, the Bible calls that various things like a root of bitterness. In Ephesians 4, it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't make room for the devil. That bitterness is joining Team Satan. Um, so here's a few practical tips. But first, I want, I want to hear. I'm not going to give you these tips unless you join Team Holy Spirit. So I want to hear from you. Who would like to join Team Holy Spirit today? This morning. Okay, I appreciate that enthusiasm. That's good. As we leave here today, here's a few practical tips. These are so simple. The devil's tricks are so simple, but they work. Which is why we've just got to be simple by obeying Jesus and how we respond. One, talk to people, not about people. Talk to people, not about people. Hey, I just got to be real for a second. When hard things come up in the life of the church, we need to deal with them. Amen? We don't bury them under the rug in the name of grace. We've got to talk about it. Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But if uh, Brother Johnny sins and you need to confront that, who are you supposed to confront that to? Brother Johnny, good job. If you go confront that, uh, confront that sin by talking to Brother Bobby... You know what that's called? There you go. See, we already know. We already know. Christians just don't do what the Bible says. Amen. Talk to people, not about people. There are a few specific situations where we got to talk to about people. Um, but I'm not even going to go into those because that's like one percent. The other ninety nine percent just don't do it. Right. Just don't do it. Talk to people if there's a problem. Address the problem directly in a spirit of love. And hey. One of the things that that means, too, is we don't want to be gossip enablers. Let, let me just tell you something, friends. If you are a safe person to gossip to, that means you're participating in the destruction of community. If people come and talk to you about other people in a negative light all the time because you're a safe person to do that, you're participating in the destruction of community. Now, I've got to admit, there's been t- people come to a pastor all the time to ask my advice. And sometimes I start listening and responding and it takes me a while to be like, you should just talk to them about it. Which is what I should always say first. So I failed at this. And other people have failed about this. Can we recommit ourselves, church? Talk to people, not about people? Okay. Here's a second simple one. Choose gratitude, not grumbling. Amen. Hey, if there's problems, we need to confront it. And the most helpful person to confront it to is somebody who can do something about it. If you're just talking to your buddy who can't do anything about it, that's called grumbling. Right? And instead of grumbling about um, the problems in community, let's give thanks to God. For the blessings of community. Number three, think less about being served and more about serving. Thinking about being served and how other people should meet my needs and how other people have not met my needs usually gets me into a lonely and bitter place. Anybody else notice that? But if I think more about how I can serve others and love them and meet their needs, this brings healing. And of course, it's okay for you to have your own needs and communicate those too. I'm just talking about our focus here. And my last point that I want to make, I want to end where Jesus ends in this passage. Remember that all of our names are written in heaven. All of our names are written in heaven by grace. My name is written in heaven, not because I deserve to be there, but because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Your name is written in heaven, not because you deserve to be there, but because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus died so we could be together forever. And that's why we fight for community. Amen, church? All right, I want to invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to say a prayer for us. The worship team is going to come up. As we sing this last song...
We're going to worship the Lord. But it's just on my heart this morning that I know the devil wants to attack his church. And I just want to pray about it. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Most of you should just stand there and worship the Lord. But I feel personally compelled to just get on my knees at this altar and pray for Team Holy Spirit to win in our community and not Team Satan. That division will not prevail, but love and unity will prevail. And I want to invite you, if the Lord put it on your heart, if there would be a few intercessors who would come up here as we're worshiping God together. I would just love to have a few people come and kneel, representing the church, humbling ourselves before God's presence, asking that we're going to be a unified, loving community. Would a few of you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Jesus, we praise you. It's all about you. You're the king. You're the victor. Only you can... Defeat Satan and you have defeated Satan. So we worship you here. We thank you for the authority you've given us over spiritual forces of evil. But we're wanting to rejoice not in that primarily. We're wanting to rejoice that by grace our names are written in heaven. We praise you. We deserve judgment. If, if our sin had its way, we would have cut ourselves out off from you forever. So we praise you, Jesus, for chasing us down and bringing us home. You get all the glory forever. And Lord, we want to be faithful ambassadors of your kingdom. We want to love our enemies. We want to walk in radical, dependent faith. And it's just on my heart this morning. we, We want to do it together in a spirit of unity and love. So as we worship you now, would you be overcoming the schemes of Satan right now? Lord, if there's in our hearts any sins we need to repent of, if we participate in gossip and slander, we just repent that now. And uh, we want to come to you saying, Lord, make us members of Team Holy Spirit. That we would contend for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the church, which is the bride of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.